And let's pray. Heavenly Father, with, with awe we come before you. With, with joy we sit together in this large room, thankful that we can be together. And uh, Lord, we have a lot of people from our midst that are not able to be here today. COVID-related, travel-related, health-related. Lord, we are thankful for who is able to, those who are able to be here. Lord, we are deeply thankful for those who are unable to be here but are, are watching through the live stream or listening. Lord, you're, in your word, it says the church is to be a pillar and buttress of truth. And um, as a local manifestation of the universal church, we are thankful for every one, every part of the body. We have some that are unable to be here because of distance, maybe even being overseas. But we're thankful for every part. May you open our eyes. May you guide our thoughts. May your Holy Spirit direct us, even in this Christmas season, with every part of our life, including our possessions. In your name, amen. Several years ago, I, I was reading some, some missions uh, writing, and I remember reading about um, a Pacific Islander tribe, and um, it was, it was a British man, and he's hiking along. You can kind of picture coming him up through the sand, and he's got a pack, and he's got that ruddy red face, and he's sweating buckets. He's got a huge pack on his back, and he's, he's trying to hike into the interior. This is decades ago, and a local guy comes by wearing a very small pair of shorts, and he says, uh, what's with all the cargo? I remember that stuck out to me thinking, Pacific Islander, the, the native guy, is saying, why do you have all that stuff? And the missionary guy, uh, what kind of context can I explain? I don't want to have one book. I want to have 40 books. I don't want to have one shirt. I prefer having two or even three or even five. That idea of possessions, we had looked, um, I actually think it was in, in August. It might have been July uh, I'd written kind of a, a, a two-part, two-sermon short series on possessions. And so we had talked um, some months back that possessions do not last long. And we talked that possessions can captivate us, that possessions can corrupt us, that possessions or, or cargo, as it might be said, can truly drive God away. We looked in Matthew chapter 6 where it says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but rather store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And then we add to that, we add to Matthew chapter 6, we, we add Matthew chapter 5 or Luke chapter 6, and they tell us something like, if someone asks for your cloak, to give him your tunic as well. And it's a Christmas season. And so everywhere you go, there are people asking for your money. So you're in the Kroger parking lot and someone is holding a sign saying that they are hungry. Or someone asks for money while you're at Smothers Park with your kid. Maybe not right now. Or your church passes an offering plate or has one in the back. And you think, do, do I put money in that? 
Or is that for like the rich people? Or who, who's supposed to do that? Are we still under the law? Are we not under the law? Who's responsible for this? Or you go to a Christmas get-together and your cousin Sid makes it known that he's finally off dope and needs a car so he can do a job search. And you hypothetically could buy a car, a cheap one. You could certainly get a loan for one. What do you do for your cousin that asks? What do we do? So the central premise of the message today is that being abundant towards others with what we have is a central tenet of laying hold of eternal life. Working at the Patino shelter, I can't tell you how many times people would come in and give us a check and say, uh, I hope this gets me in good with the man upstairs, or I hope I, hope, I, hope I get some benefit from this. What am I going to get from this? Well, that's a very inaccurate idea of what the Scripture teaches us, but it does teach being generous with others with what we have been given is central to truly being a child of God. So today, uh, we don't have notes. I guess there's been some technology things, but I'm so thankful for all the men and women that do so many things with all of our technology and all everything. Um, But we're going to look at two things to avoid, two things to seek. And the two things to avoid... We need to watch out for pride. We need to watch out for uncertain hope. Two things to seek. We need to do good abundantly, and we need to be generous with what we have. So let's look there at what John had read. We're in 1 Timothy chapter 6, starting with verse 17, and it says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Well, what's the temptation here? Well, the temptation here is to see, I work hard, I put in a lot of effort, I've been wise with my money, I've made good decisions, I've got a Protestant work work ethic, I'm a believer. Some people might say, well, I'm an American. I'm getting the result of my wise living. And there can be some truth to some of those, right? If we work hard, I mean, Proverbs talks about it a lot, other places in Scripture, that there, are, there is reward to working hard. There is reward to saving. There is reward to preparing. We see that over and over and over. But the temptation for each of us, and this is whether you're very young or very old or somewhere in between, is to become conceited or lofty or to feel superior. Like, that. look how much I contributed to the good I am enjoying. And early church father John Christossom said this, he's talking about this passage that we're looking at today, and he says, and this advice Paul gives knowing that nothing so generally produces pride and arrogance as wealth. Well, that's pretty strong. We can think, well, maybe power, maybe looks, maybe job, maybe all these different things, but wealth has a way of circling back around and feeding pride and feeding pride and feeding pride. Another pastor says money's chief attraction is the power that it gives and the pride that it feeds. And really what can be happening there is we can be thinking, what is my need for God or, or do I have a need for God? You, you can turn with me or you can just listen as I read, but if we, if we turn back a little bit to Malachi, famous section in Malachi, and you read in Malachi chapter 1, and man, the, the Israelites are bringing just junk to God saying, hey, here's my sacrifice. Here's the crippled. Here's the blind. Here's the lame. Here you go, God. And in Malachi chapter 1, God says, I don't want your junk. Get that away from me. I wish that even just one person would shut the doors of this temple. I don't want to have any of this. I'm God. 
you see me of who I truly am? And then Malachi chapter 3, it talks about robbing God and, and, and the goodness of God. And it says, but you're not like this. In Malachi chapter 3 verse 13, God says against Israel, truly I guess this would be centrally against Judah, says, your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. You Israelites have been saying, how have we spoken against you? They're saying that to God. And God says, this is what you've said. It's vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. So the people of Judah are saying, God is really small. God doesn't do much. God doesn't have much power. He's not, he's not one to worry about. We can do whatever we want. What does God even know? What does God even do? What does God even care? And that's really kind of circles us back to what we're doing with pride connected to finances, possessions, or gifts. God becomes very, very small because who got this? We can think, I got it for myself. Which takes us to, to 1 Timothy and um, 6.17. At the very beginning, it says, as for the rich in this present age, and we all read that, most of us read that, and we think, well, that's the other guy. Well, that's this person over here, that's this person over there, that's this other one. But if our thinking is correct, we have to know that the vast majority of Americans are rich according to world and certainly historical measures. If you have transportation other than your own two feet, historically, you're pretty wealthy. If you have more than three days food, if you have more than two outfits, some cultures only one, if you have more than one pair of shoes or sandals, if you have the ability to get medical care, we are rich according to history's standards. And so when we read this verse, we're tempted to say, oh, that's that guy, that's for my aunt, or that's for my cousin, or that's for somebody else. We need to be reading this and saying, as for the rich in this present age, that's me. And what am I doing with this? How does this apply to me? So we need to watch out for pride. Secondly, the second thing to avoid, we need to watch out for trusting in or relying in uncertain hope. So we, we must not be haughty, nor, it says in the middle of 17, to set our hopes on the uncertainty of riches. And we could go into detail, as we did last time in the sermon, so I won't review it, but what does a moth do, and what does rust do, and what do thieves do? Well, they wipe things out. And I think we would all agree that cars get old, and I think we would agree that clothes wear out, and that inflation really is real. I, I was talking with someone this week, uh, connected with, they had had COVID, and I said, how are you doing? Are you, are you back to 90%? And they had, they had had a rough run. I said, are you back to 90%? And this person's only a couple years older than me. And I thought they'd say, oh, yeah. And the person wrote back and said, I haven't been 90% in several years. Because <laughs> bodies wear out. And it's funny, you know, you, you go play sports with younger kids and you leap into the air to do something really cool with a basketball and you don't get off the ground. Or you, and you think, what happened? Cohen LaCour blocked my shot and he's, he's a little fella. But you don't, you know, like the body doesn't work the same. When you get sick as you age, you don't bounce back as quickly. You, the body, things wear out. Clothing, cars, whatever that it is. And when we put our trust in possessions, we're putting our trust in things that are uncertain. Proverbs 23 makes the phrase, uh, 
It's talking about wealth, and it says wealth takes flight and flies away. It is not certain. But then it makes a phrase here. It says, so don't set your hopes on, uncertainty, on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. If you want to turn with me to Deuteronomy, or again, you can just listen as I read, but Deuteronomy chapter 8, some really good, some really good thinking for us here. And I'm actually going to read the, the entire section um, in Deuteronomy chapter 8. And just, just to give us some context, Deuteronomy is, is restating uh, the law, um, restating some covenant promises here in Deuteronomy. So if you want to be thinking back even to the time of the Exodus, and you have Exodus 19, when God reminds Israel, hey, you are my special possession, you're a kingdom of priests, you're a holy nation. Um, Exodus 23, these promises that God will fight for his children, says this, but if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. So kind of take that thinking from Exodus, and that's the thinking that, that God wants us to have in Deuteronomy 8, 11, and I'll probably stop at 20. I might stop a little bit before that, but, but think that way with me. This is what God says. He says, take care lest you forget the Lord your God. And I think this would be the warning from Moses. Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I commanded you today, lest, when you have pride, when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply, and your silver and your gold is multiplied, and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up. And you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers didn't know, that, here's the purpose for it, that he might humble you, and test you to do you good in the end. Beware, here's our warning. Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand has gotten me this wealth. God says through Moses, you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as to this day. And if you forget the Lord your God, and if you go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you will surely perish. Like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so shall you perish because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. Now, we're really separate from death in our, in our day and age today. Talked about that with the teens today in our, in our Sunday school class. But Israel would be freshly remembering, hey, here's what your fathers did before you when they went into the evil nations and they killed people. And they killed people with the sword, and there were dead bodies laying around. And he said, you are going to be dead like them if you have pride in your heart for what you have. Who gave it to you? It is God and God alone. That same thinking is in 1 Samuel chapter 2, and Hannah has her prayer when she's bringing Samuel and dedicating him to the Lord. And she, she's making these truth statements about God. And she says, God makes the wealthy. And God brings down the poor. I mean, God, like God does it and makes it. And his hand is what we're looking at. You guys can look that up. It's in 1 Samuel chapter 2. But also right along with that. So this uncertainty of riches. Don't look to that, but look to God 
who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. We could all make a list right now, and I hope you did at Thanksgiving, and I hope you do at Christmas, and I think you do other days as well. I hope you do, or at least think about it, even if you don't make a physical list or verbalize it with your family. But we have so much to be thankful for and so much to enjoy. You, you know, here in Owensboro, and you go and you look out at the Ohio River and you think, the amount of water that God makes to run down that thing and how wide it is and the power behind it. You eat a delicious sandwich or you spend time with your family or you start a car that really starts and runs. You go to a job that God has provided. You spend time with your kids or family or whomever. God is so good to us. Living in a time where you can live stream a sermon so someone at home with COVID can watch online and be blessed with the word of God and with singing. We are truly, truly blessed. In 1 Timothy 6, some verses prior to those that are the central part of the text, but it has some thinking that I think goes right along with this. It says in 1 Timothy 6, if you want to go maybe end of verse 5, it talks about sin and not being puffed up. People that don't listen to the sound words of our Lord Jesus It says at the end of verse 5, it talks about imagining that godliness is a means of gain. And then Paul says this to Timothy, Now there is a great gain in godliness with contentment in verse 6. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. And most of us have been in church a long time, and most of us have heard that verse over and over. And every one of us can say, yeah, yep, that's true, that's true. But every single person in here must fight for that. Because truly, we don't feel very content if that's all that we have. Because truly, I mean, we live at a time when are you preparing for this and that? And yes, there's all kinds of things about preparing, and we should be wise. And if, if, you, if you can save money toward retirement, do it, great. If you can have money saved back so when your car breaks down, you can fix it with whatever parts you need, and all those kind of wise things. We, we, we want to do that. But for every one of us, I've got food, I've got clothing, and I'm good. We struggle a little bit there. We might struggle a lot right there. And I think this section speaks well against the prosperity gospel that's so popular in our world today. And we kind of like to think, oh, it's just in America or just in Europe. But if you read the, the typical evangelism that's happening worldwide, Africa, a lot of it, prosperity gospel is alive and well. You love God, you're going to get all this good stuff and everything's going to be just peachy in your life. This section speaks well against that. I think it speaks well against asceticism, that it's just me and my family, and okay, we'll be okay, we'll just hunker down over here, and we'll be all right. The whole context of 1 Timothy is, hey, hey, Timothy, you're in the context of a church, and hey, as a church, this is what things are supposed to look like. You're supposed to stand for truth as a church. You're supposed to be content as a church. You're an individual in a church, but you're a part of a church. Are we following God in contentment as a church. And it's serious. The next verse or two in verse 9 says, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. It doesn't say it might make your life a little difficult. It's saying ruin and destruction if you desire to be rich. For the love of money 
is a root of all kinds of evil. And we dealt with that actually in the last sermon, so I'm not going to re-deal with that there. But it says, through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. And I want to warn you teenagers in here and you kids in here and everyone else in here, we can think that's somebody else's problem. Well, I hope my parents don't have this problem or I won't have this problem. I've challenged teenagers before. Hey, you've got some real skills. Oh, now you're, you're moving into college. If you get the job that it looks like you're going to get with your degree, you might make a lot of money. You better be careful. You better look to Christ. You better be, you better be a warning to yourself right now. What do you want? What do you desire with your possessions? And these warnings are not small things. Wandered away from the faith is a serious warning. So those are our two things to avoid, and they're serious. And now we have our two things to seek. First of all, doing good abundantly. You're there at the end of 1 Timothy 6, and it says God has given us all these great things to enjoy. And what are the rich to do? What are we to do? We're to do good. We're to be rich in good works, to be generous, ready to share, storing up treasure for ourselves. So I want to do a case study here. We're supposed to do good abundantly. I want to do a, a case study. We had John read from Luke chapter 10, the uh, Good Samaritan. And I want you to think about that. So kind of reviewing your thinking a little bit. Many of you have been in Sunday school or children's church. You've read that passage many times. Maybe you have not. Maybe today is the first time you have heard that story of the Good Samaritan. But think through what John read and think about the man's giving, this Good Samaritan. So the questions, what stipulations did he give in our case study? What expectations did he have? So we could think this of the Good Samaritan. Hey, Good Samaritan, he goes up to this guy who's beat to pieces. And you could say, hey, guy beat to pieces. Why were you alone? Why did you put yourself in the position of getting beat up? Why didn't you travel with a group? Why weren't you armed with a staff or something? Why, why did you make some of the decisions you did? Why, why were you walking in a dangerous area? Those are questions that we might feel should be asked, but they're not asked in the text. And yes, we should have wisdom. You know, don't, don't you teenagers be picking up hitchhikers. You know, none of it. We don't, don't loan your credit card to strangers. You know, we, we, we want to make wise, good choices. But, but, it, but in this context, what was going on right here? Well, well, think through it with me. Some things I wrote down. The giving was abundant. It was oil and wine. He didn't just say, hey, I hope you get better. But he gave, his giving was abundant in our case study here. He interrupted his travel or his plans. He was surely going to do other things when he was walking down that road. But he stopped and changed his plans. He did something that other people, or even socially or culturally, it wasn't acceptable to do. We've got the, the Aaronic priest doesn't stop in. We've got the Levitical priest doesn't stop in, but the Samaritan does. So we've got some cultural norms that he was willing to break. So that is a big deal, especially in helping people. Um, he gave of time. There was an element of danger involved. What if the robbers get me? So he's willing to put himself out there. Not just, hey, if everything is just perfect, then maybe I can help out. Put himself out there in a potentially dangerous situation. It was messy. It says he bandaged him up. I don't know. We've got some medical professionals in this group, but for most of us, bandaging up someone else's wounds isn't really our favorite thing to do, possibly. But he bandaged him up, willing to get messy. And he eventually involved other people. He gets the, the, um, his finances. He involves other people. He spends his own money. And um, he gets the innkeeper involved. 
So what's the point of the story? Well, the point of the story is, who is my neighbor, right? So that we don't go around and we could say, well, so-and-so in this church is really, really nice. I, I like to help her. Or he's a really nice guy. He's been really kind to me. He's been helpful to me. I think I'll help this guy. Clearly, the point of the parable that Jesus is making is, who is my neighbor? Everyone is my neighbor. Who am I helping? But a secondary central point is focusing on the action of the loving, not on the outcome or the result. Because everyone, or most of us, like to see things end up really nice and clean and pretty. And so you're giving counsel to someone. You're doing counseling. And you want it to finish well. And, and, and we should want that. And we can think, oh, I shouldn't have even bothered counseling with this woman because I've met six different times that I don't think she's any closer to coming to Christ. That was all worthless. We have a tendency or temptation to think that way. And, and we need to, to banish that thinking from our minds because the joy in that is the goodness of following our Savior as he tells us to love and care for other people and leaving the results to him. And so I, I have a good friend who, who, who goes to, is part of a, a good church in town here. And um, uh, when I was at the Patino shelter, we had someone that came in from out of town with four or five kids, and we could not control this woman. Could, could, could not control her. The normal things we use for control would be, we are for you, we want the best for you, but you can't stay here if you don't follow at least some basic rules. And this person would not follow any rules. She would, she would frankly disappear and leave her kids at the shelter, like with nobody watching them, baby up to older. We couldn't get, she was letting people in the building that had no business being in the building because she had access. She'd let, I mean, it was, it was the most human difficult thing that we had there. And so this, this friend of mine got involved, and, uh, and she's a believer. And she reached out in ways far beyond anything that I, I have personally done. And she brought this women and her, woman and her children into her house, and it was a disaster there. And she got her church involved. And uh, they ended up renting a, a mobile home. DCBS got involved. Some kids were taken away. This Christian friend kind of helped farm some kids out, so they got care from other people. Uh, this friend of mine did ab abundant things, loved on those kids. One kid personally did foster care, sought adoption, um, and it was messy and ugly and tough every day for close to a year. And then the mom packed up her stuff, snagged all the kids, and, and went back up north. And I remember hearing and, uh, that, that that had happened, and then when I saw that person again, I said, are you okay? I'm sorry, and are you okay? Did you? And, and the response was basically, I did this because I love Jesus, and so I'm willing to put myself out there. And so we could look at that story and think, oh, that, that was a failure because the kids were yanked out of the home, and they're, they're, they're back in Illinois, and, and things are no good. But it is good, and it's not a failure because those kids were loved, and truth was spoken. And, and boundaries were given that the other person wasn't willing to, to go along with, but they made every effort to show them the, the glory of Christ and what Jesus would do and care. And so, was it ugly? Was it messy? Absolutely. Was it more than, than most of us could do? This friend of mine is, is superbly gifted and could do some things beyond what I feel like I can do. 
But then I have this quote from a, from a guy that, that many of us know, some of us know. James Litzy has this quote, and he says this. We must discern God calling us to works we cannot do, and then obey him anyway, relying only on his provision. We must obey beyond the limits of self-sufficiency, even collective self-sufficiency. We must set aside our fear of appearing foolish, counting God's approval sufficient. That's a big one. And he says this, that's the culture of heaven. Those are the good works that he wants from us. Those are the good works that result in his glory. Not that the end result works perfectly, but that we step out and reach out and do good abundantly. He says that right along. So be rich in good works and be generous and ready to share. We can think, um, so let me, let's give two, two scenarios. Let's do a little case study. Let's, do, let's give two scenarios. Uh, scenario one, we're interacting with someone who either has an addiction uh, issue or let's say an unmarried, unplanned pregnancy. And they're coming to us, I'm pregnant. Uh, let's, let's say they're 17, no boyfriend, or, you know, no, no husband, no relationship. Um, or some, let's say a different one, someone, someone's got an addiction. Let's, let's kind of put those two together. What do we do on something like that? Well, our, our first thought is, virtually every one of us is, let's have the professionals take care of that. So, uh, CareNet, for example, advises on pregnancy and life, and I am so thankful that they're in our community. They do a terrific job. Glad that our church supports them. Um, Friends of Sinners, counseling, accountability. Friends of Sinners does a terrific job. Are, are these groups perfect? No, but they do a terrific job. Can they give better wisdom than, than most of us? Absolutely. But we must not think as Christians, oh, the professionals need to take this. Uh, this is, oh, I better get a professional. There's a, there's a time and a place for that, for sure. But what about your niece? What about your coworker's son? What about your neighbor? If 2 Timothy 3 says that all Scripture is, is breathed out from God and is useful for teaching and correcting and training in righteousness, and the Word of God should be training me, and then that the man of God, the servant of God, might be thoroughly equipped for every good work, then it should be equipping me, and I should be able to equip others. And so move slowly. Don't be in a rush to say, let me just get you to somebody that knows more than I do. I think every one of us would recognize at different levels how many just regular guy or regular girl has been very vital to our sanctification throughout the years. I think I can look back of all kinds of just regular guy in a church or uncle or just person who said, I love Jesus. Let me share some thoughts with you. And we need to be that person for others. That's part of doing good abundantly and being generous. Uh, scenario number two, uh, let's say some, some financial needs in the church. Um, we can think, well, we should let the really rich take care of it. I'm barely making it paycheck to paycheck. Um, I, I don't have the, the bandwidth financially to help out with this or that need. You might even see, like with giving, you might say, well, there's an there's a offering plate there. That, must, that has to be for other people. Once my wife and I, or once I'm older, or once I'm in, in better shape financially or whatever, then, then I'll start contributing as well. But if we, if we think about this, what part am I playing? How I can be generous? The Mosaic Law required a 10% tithe. We could back up chronologically a little bit and say, uh, under Melchizedek, there was also a tithe given that was 10%, and so that, that predates the law. Um, if you add a temple tax, some other things, it might be 15 to 20, even some people would think as high as 23 or 25% of a person's income might be going to, to tithe or tax. Jews. Now, in the New Testament, there's no mention of a tithe. 
We could argue and argue well from Corinthians that we're under the law of Christ. But there are some expectations of care in a church. So the scenario number two, a need in a church, what are some expectations? Well, one, to support the church. It's vital. Uh, two, paying at least some pastors, don't muzzle the ox, being ju- generous, double honor, so paying some pastors. Uh, three, care of one church for another, for other churches. That's definitely there in the book of Acts. Uh, another one would be that the wording, hey, on the first day of the week when, you, when you're giving money, that would be Sunday, that would be today, that thought is in there. And then there's the idea in Corinthians of being that, that generous giver, that, that word of hilarion, being a, a generous, abundant giver. But you say, but I'm tight for money, I'm super tight, how can I give, should I give? Well, this is just some things for you to think about. I'm not you know, woodenly saying that thou shalt and this and this and this, but I want you to think about these things. Um, first of all, we must not be legalistic or think we're earning merit with our giving. When we put money in a basket or we text 77977 or whatever that I've never tried, but go right ahead. Uh, I hope we have an attitude not of just, here's a transaction. It's like paying my electric bill. I hope if you put money in there that you're saying, God, I am giving this as an offering from the abundance that you have given me. I'm giving this to you. And this is a privilege, not a duty. I hope we give generously that hilarion idea. Uh, Second, even the poorest Israelites were expected to give 10%. I think this is interesting. So the poorest Israelites might have one day worth of food, might have one change of clothes or not, might live in a rented corner of a house, as we, as we hear a few times in Scripture. They might work six days a week just to buy food to survive. They can't afford medical care, but they were required to give. And I think as, as New Testament believers, we should look at that and say, the temptation is just to kick the can down the road and say, well, when I have more money, when I have more money, when I have more money, we need to be saying, God supplies me right now. How can I be generous to him? And I'll tell you, in, in odd providence, in discussing this with somebody, I think yesterday at the men's prayer breakfast, you know, the, the giving in our church has increased during the time of COVID, which is unheard of. And, and so I'm not excoriating believers out in this group or any of us. I'm just saying, we want to be abundant. You give abundantly. But every one of us should be saying, I have an opportunity to praise my Savior in this way. And the result of following these admonitions. So scenario one, scenario two, being generous, ready to share, is this in verse 19. We've got these two pictures. And if you, uh, if you ever do in your reading have a mixed metaphor, here's a mixed metaphor for you. We've got treasure and foundation in the same sentence. So it says, thus, you're being generous, you who are rich in this world, us, storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. An idea on heavenly reward. Luke chapter 12 talks about being uh, generous towards God. The idea of treasure in heaven that does not fail. The pastor Tozer says this. I think this is connected to this idea of treasure. He says this, As base a thing as money often is, it yet can be transmuted into everlasting treasure. It can be converted into food for the hungry and clothing for the poor. It can keep a missionary actively winning lost men to the light of the gospel and thus transmute itself into heavenly values. Any temporal possession can be turned into everlasting wealth 
whatever is given to Christ is immediately touched with immortality. And that's, that's an incredible, incredible quote. And then the other picture he gives us is that of a foundation. And we've all seen some old barn or old house with a crumbling foundation. We've also seen maybe a majestic older house with just a huge foundation, great big boulders mortared together or great big stones. And that idea is, there, is that it, it demonstrates. It's not earning us salvation, but it demonstrates that we are a child of God. And I'd like us to think through this. I have a long quote from B.B. Warfield. But this quote has the gospel wrapped up in this. And so kids out here, teenagers here, all of us out here, be thinking about the good news of Jesus when I read this quote. He's being specific to finances, but I want us to think about the gospel in it. Warfield is saying to his students, he says, hey, uh, you've prayed, you want to be like Christ. So here are some objections. So if you want to be like him in your giving, if you want to be like him in, in your giving, connected to how 1 Timothy 6 talks, what are some objections that we might have? He says this, first of all, you might say, my money is my own. Warfield says, well, here's an answer. Christ might have said, my blood is my own, my life is my own, and there and where should we then be? Second objection. We might say, the poor are undeserving. Answer. Christ might have said, they are undeserving. Wicked rebels, shall I lay down my life for these? But no, he left the 99 and came after the lost. Objection number three. The poor may abuse it, and it happens. The poor may abuse it. Answer. Christ might have said the same, yea, with far greater truth. Christ knew that thousands would trample his blood under their feet, that most would, not desp- that most would despise it, yet he gave his own blood. O Christian, if you would be like Christ, give much, give often, give freely. I want your happiness. And Jesus said it is more blessed to give than receive. So one of the huge blessings that we have as pastors is we could be the first ones that read the new member testimonies. So we have um, eight or ten people are seeking membership. And so I think many of those have been emailed out and some more, some more will be emailed out today, tomorrow, over the next few days. And I love reading those. I read them out of no duty. I read those and I say, look at what Jesus Christ did in bringing people to himself. And there'll be people from this background and that background. And, and some people give details of sin and other people just say, I'm a sinner and I have a great Savior. Some people give lots of detail. Some people have long. Some people have short. But every one of those, we echo. And I hope that when you read those, you are challenged. And you might read those, and you might not be a believer. I hope you read them and think through, who is this Savior, and what has he done? And I hope when you read or listen to what I'm quoting from Warfield, Christ might have said, my blood is my own, I keep it to myself, but he gave abundantly and freely. Christ might have said they're undeserving, and we are undeserving. The gospel reminds us we have a great and abundant Savior who is so, so good to us. So a couple practical things, just some practical wisdom on, on generous giving. Um, be really, avoid giving cash or writing a check unless you really know somebody. If you have someone you're helping out in the church and you want to give cash or, or a check or whatever, you're probably in good stead. But if you are out and about in the community, there are few people that work with the homeless or with the, the marginalized that encourage giving out cash because the temptation 
even if they want to do the right thing with it, the temptation to not is strong. And uh, I remember uh, years and years ago, um, having a guy come up to me, the church where I pastored, we were on a busy road, and we'd have people in all the time, and they'd just come up. And or I remember I'd walk out of my office, and just we had kind of a no-lock-the-door kind of policy. This was some years ago, and people would just be wandering around the church. or <laughs> Hey, uh, what you doing there, buddy? And uh, I'd meet people and get a share Christ them is good. And we'd find like vodka bottles in the bathroom and occasionally and stuff like that. And uh, I remember talking with the guy, this guy, long story, and I want money and money and money. And I said, I, I'll take you out to eat. I'll go put gas in your car. You know, we'll just go across the street. And now I want cash. And went down to, I said, I, I have like 46 cents in my pocket or I could put $40 in your car, or I could take you out. I could, as, as a church, we could pay this electric bill that's supposed to be so dire. And he said, give me the 45 cents. <laughs> Left. So that just that tells you, and I'm not saying that's every single person, but more than you know, cash is not good things happen with it. So, so if you can pay a bill directly, that's great. If you can take out for a meal, that's terrific. Um, this, is, uh, this is obviously, you know, with, with people you don't know well. Uh, two, opportunities to work are terrific. Now, that's a hard one. You might say, well, I don't have work at my house, or I live a long ways away. How, how do I get them this opportunity to work? That's a challenging one, and I'd encourage you to think about it, even think about it ahead of time, if there are some jobs that you had or some way that you could come alongside someone. The, the teens, we went through a, a, a study earlier this summer um, called Poverty Cure, and it's, it's a biblical organization, and they understand that this side of eternity, poverty will not be cured. You'll always have more with you, but it was it was specifically looking at Africa and a lot of the, the, the well-meaning but poorly done aid that uh, Europe and the Americas have done for Africa, turning people into a, oh, I need a whole bunch of stuff, I need this, I need this, I need this, rather than um, opportunities to work. And so the big pusher in, in this poverty cure was we need the gospel, we need Christ, we need to come alongside people and help them find work and, and ways to feel good about themselves, seeing that work is a gift from God. Um, so be looking for those opportunities. Third, be kind. If you've ever helped out someone who's very, very poor or helped someone who's struggling, and you help them out financially and you're a jerk about it, it doesn't mean much. 1 Corinthians 13 says, if you do good things with a heart that's not for them, it's a sounding gong or a clanging cymbal without a heart for Christ. So if you go and help someone abundantly, and you nag at them, or if you help someone abundantly, and then you talk bad about them as soon as you hop in the car, or if you help someone abundantly, and then you're like, come on, what's your problem? Knock it off. It's, it's nothing. You've got to be kind. Got to be kind. Fourth, it will be messy. With so many people that are hurting, chaos is just part of their life. Uh, at the Patino Shelter, we would help someone. We would help them get back on their feet. We would help them get enrolled in a school, help them get jobs. So many people, once they have success, they can't handle it, and they go right back into the chaos again. They can't handle success, as it were. And just know that's part of the deal. When you're signing up, it's messy. So we have people in our church that have done adoption and foster care. You know, my best friend is adopted. Um, so thankful for that work. But if you think, I'm going to do foster care because this kid will love me so much and be so thankful everything's going to be nice after this, that's not the case. There's challenges, challenges, challenges. It's like when you married your spouse, your spouse married you. You know, they did not, Natalie didn't marry Prince Charming. She married someone that has struggles and sin and indwelling sin and has to fight it till I die. 
And it's much the same with helping people that are hurting. And if I could close with this, many of you are familiar with the, the story of, of William Borden. He's a really, really rich young man from Chicago who's converted actually at Moody's Church. Moody had died, and I think R.A. Torrey was there at, actually at the time. Um, this may be the early 1900s. And uh, Borden's like super smart and crazy rich. And well, here's a, a recipe for disaster. Well, he comes to Christ, and he says, well, I'm the rich in this present age. And what should I do with this? So he, I mean, he's abundant. He goes to Yale. One of the things when he went to Yale, he saw you know, deep, deep, deep poverty. And he didn't want people to think, oh, there's the rich guy. So actually what he did is he, he started this homeless group. And, uh, he, and he didn't tell everybody. He paid for 100% of it. And he worked the front desk. So because he, he wanted, like, I'm just the front desk guy. And I, I work my shifts just like everybody else. And most people didn't know that he was the one that, that bankrolled that. And that's as an 18, 19, 20-year-old. Got some more education at Princeton. Um, lots of generous living. He desired to do missions to Muslims. I know it sounds odd, but in, in northwest China, there's a, 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 a geographic area there of Muslim Chinese. Uh, he was in Egypt learning Arabic, age 25, gets spinal meningitis. His mom's coming out to visit him, dead. 25 years old. And we all have a tendency of thinking, what if that's my son? Wait, he could have used his wealth for so many great things. Why? We don't know the why. But in his time here on earth, he used his money abundantly. He didn't save it all for a rainy day. He used it abundantly for the cause of Christ. And, and on his tomb, it was written about him, a man in Christ, he arose and forsook all and followed him. Kindly affectioned with brotherly love, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, instant in prayer, communicating to the necessity of the saints, in honor preferring others, and then this phrase, apart from faith in Christ, there is no explanation for such a life. So in this Christmas season, when we are celebrating the incarnation, when we're shopping for Christmas presents for our kids or setting up a Christmas tree or doing all the maybe busy or not busy things that we do this time of year. I pray that we focus on the incarnation and hearing the words sung of his different songs, hearing the, the statement that we read responsively. I hope we're thinking of the incarnation of Christ, and I hope that our generosity and abundance reflects our relationship with our abundant Savior. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we've been given much. And I know in this group there are those that have large amounts of money and there are those that have small amounts of money. There are those that are concerned right now, how am I going to pay this bill? Thinking, I wish I could give a present to my adult child but can't or, or a variety of things, Lord. We have diversity in this church. The Lord led us during this season and truly, Lord, year-round be saying, look at the abundance that my Savior has given me. Look at the forgiveness that he has bountifully bestowed upon me. May we not be abundant with our possessions. Lord, let us not desire to be rich, but to be rich towards God. May we seek to have treasure in heaven 
May we seek to do good. May we rest in your grace. In Jesus' name.